you will, begin turning in your Bibles to John chapter 7. Today we're going to be looking at the first 24 verses of John chapter 7. And Jesus' time there at the Feast of Booths, and we'll talk about that, and we'll talk about how we, in seeking our own glory, are not doing the will of the Father, but in seeking our seeking the glory of the Father, seeking the glory of the Son, that is how we do His will on this earth, and that is how we should teach Him as well. And so before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come to your word, we pray that you would open it before us. We at times struggle with it because of our inability as creatures and also because of our sin, because we are desperate for your throne and we worship other gods. And so, Lord, direct us back to you. Convict us of the sin in our hearts that leads to idolatry. Convict us of the sin that would want these words of yours to be different to suit us. Teach us from your word. Guide us to your truth. Convict us of our sin. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so as I thought of this chapter and as I read through it, in particular, this interaction that Jesus has with his brothers, and then he goes into the town and has some different interactions with the people there. It made me think of, of a reality TV, in particular, The Biggest Loser, if you've ever seen this show. Uh, it's a show of you know people who need to lose a lot of weight, and they come on the television show, and it ends up being like this reality TV competition. And I used to watch this show quite a bit, and I liked it a lot. Because it's very inspiring. It's great to see these people who had this you know, giant weight problem. They could get in shape. They lost a ton of weight. They got to train with these professional trainers. It was always really good. And it, it was such a team effort. You know, I, I like to go to the gym myself. And one of the coolest things about going is being there with people who are like encouraging you and, and all of this thing. And you're working together. But however, in a show like The Biggest Loser, there's always something under the surface. Something is always lurking. And this is because the winner of the show gets 250 grand. And so any pretension that this was an encouraging team effort was really just a facade. Because players would sabotage others, they would gain weight on purpose and gather votes, and they would, they would do things to even let their whole team down just to satisfy their own personal gain. And so as I watch this, this is much more than a show about inspiring weight loss stories. It was a show about deception and politics and cutthroat tactics and you can watch just about anything and get that, so I didn't want to watch it anymore. Well, in our story today, Jesus has to deal with several folks that follow this same sort of game plan. Perhaps they can use Jesus for personal gain in their own lives, or they can even trick Jesus into being captured. Maybe. Or later, those who would judge him for healing on the Sabbath, an issue that will never go away for our Lord Jesus. Because, yet again, they believe that Sabbath keeping is what is saving them. They believe in Sabbath keeping and in law keeping as their Savior, and not Jesus. So, of course, Jesus is opposed to them. Jesus reminds those that are there 
that one who speaks on their own authority, one who speaks only for their own gain, speaks nothing but falsehood. And you can never trust their motives. And so today, in today's message, we're going to see that we are like that oftentimes. We're quick to manipulate. We're quick to judge situations in order to make it so that we can receive the glory, so that we can receive the praise instead of giving the glory to the God, God the Father above. And so in doing so, we show our inability to, to see the whole picture. Failing to understand our Lord and why he's doing what he does. And so with that, we're going to consider two main points. In seeking God's glory, we seek the will of God. And in judging with a right judgment, we rightly see the grace of God. And so as we come to this text, let's read it together. Uh, chapter 7, verses 1 through 24. Let's stand together as we read God's word. John chapter 7. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the, now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may also see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, He is a good man. Others said, No, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that that this man has learning when he has never studied. So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent me is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it, from, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's body whole, bodies, a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with the right judgment. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So one of the first things that we see here in this text 
is this concept of the Feast of Booths. We read that Jesus was in Galilee and he would not go to Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Not every single Jewish person, obviously, but when we see the word, this phrase, the Jews, it usually is referring to the Jewish leadership, the Pharisees, and, and that sort. And so he's not wanting to go to Judea just yet, but the Feast of Booths was at hand. And this is a feast that Jews have been celebrating since its inception in the wilderness, which came after their escape from Egypt. So real quickly, turn with me to Leviticus chapter 23. We're going to read about this inception of the Feast of Booths because I feel like it's a pretty good uh, introduction to what's going on and what the Jewish people are celebrating here. Leviticus 23 is a neat chapter because it has all of these different feasts that the uh, the Jewish people should celebrate and when they should celebrate them and exactly how they should celebrate them. And so here we have in this section 33 through 44 the Feast of Booths. I'm not going to read that whole section, but look with me at chapter 23 verses 39 through 43 says this, On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a solemn rest, and on the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. And you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it on the seventh, celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And so this is why they call it the Feast of Booths. It's also called the Feast of Tabernacles. It's called the Sukkot in modern Judaism. It's something that's still followed. But it was a time for the people to celebrate the harvest. They were to bring in all the produce of the land. But it was also a time for them to humble themselves and to look back and to remember that it was the Lord who brought them through this. Whatever they lived in now, they were to set that aside and gather together all of these branches and make for themselves like a hut, a grass hut, which would have been similar to what they lived in in the wilderness during, during their time and escaping from Egypt before they went into the promised land. And the Lord kept them safe in those booths or those tabernacles for all of those generations. And why was it? This is a common refrain in scripture that your generations may know that it was the Lord that brought them out of the land of Egypt, that it was the Lord that kept them safe all of those years. They were to set a, a whole week aside of the year and they were to live in booths in the streets so that they could remember that it was the Lord that saved them, not by their own hand, but it was the Lord who brought them through. It was a work of the Lord. And so every major feast of the Jews was to celebrate in some way the deliverance that the Lord brought to the people. Then it was the blood of goats 
and bulls and all these sacrifices and all these feasts. But it was the Lord Himself who would finally come. And it was the final sacrifice that showed the fullness of all of the feasts and all the ceremonies of the Old Testament. So this Feast of Booths is being celebrated, which if you think about it, the Feast of Booths commemorates Jesus himself and keeping his people safe in the wilderness all those years. And now his brothers are asking him to go to the feast. But why are they asking him to go? Look at verses 3 and 4. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. We don't really know why, what their true motives are. We are told that they are unbelievers. They're there in the very next verse. For not even his brothers believed in him. So maybe they were doing it for their own personal gain. For some kind of publicity. We know Jesus. He's our brother. Almost like taking a circus act on the road. Or it could be that they were wanting him to be caught. That They had Jesus. They knew where he was. He was hiding in Galilee. And they could take him to Judea and turn him over because they were unbelievers. I mean, they were grateful to take their brother's act on the road for some sort of profit for them. Whatever it was. We don't know. But they weren't willing to believe that their brother was the son of God to come down to earth. This is another theme that we see oftentimes. So many people think that they know Jesus because they grew up with him, because they know his parents. These are his brothers. Yet they had no idea who he was. Mary knew who he was, but it was somehow missed by his brother. And I think this again points to the sovereignty of God and salvation and how his brothers would not yet trust in Jesus for their salvation. But we know later in life that at least one of the brothers did. James, the brother of Jesus, would go on to pen a great apostle, which actually reads much like one of Jesus' discourses. And he would go on to be an elder in the early church in Jerusalem and a strong leader there in the church. And so I think this is fascinating to go ahead and see this early stage of James, the brother of Jesus, one of the brothers trying to capture his own brother or trying to seek some sort of personal gain, and yet he becomes a follower of the Lord later in life. And so Jesus does go to the feast, but only after they leave. And I've been asked before, is Jesus lying to his brothers here? And I don't believe so. He's not lying. He just plans to go to the feast labor later, not as a celebrity, but as in quiet just to, to enter the city quietly because he's not seeking to be killed. It's not yet his time, as he says. And we can see in the next passage that there's a bit of kind of this under-the-table talk of what Jesus of Jesus. Everyone is wondering who he is and what he's doing. The Jews are looking for him. The Jewish leadership are looking for him. They want to arrest him. They knew that he would come to the feast and celebrate. Why? Because Jesus always came to the feasts and celebrated because he was a Jewish man and he was bound to do that. And there was much muttering, is what the text says, that there was much muttering among the crowd. And they were, they were wondering about him, about what he, about what he, who he was and, and where is he? And some said he is a good man. And no, he is leading the people astray. There was all this 
this under-the-table, sneaky talking so that no one hears you kind of thing. Because the last time Jesus was in Judea, what did he do? He healed a man on the Sabbath, remember, by the pool. And so hearing that he might come kind of started this stir. Everything from he's a good man, like I said, to he's a false shepherd and a false prophet, and he's leading all the people astray, which is two pretty, two pretty big extremes. Yet for fear of the Jews, it says, no one spoke openly because they feared the establishment. No one wanted to be associated with him. And I think it's a lot like today. People say lots of different things about Jesus. They exist at these two extremes, a lot like the ideas here. And that brings us then to our first point, is that in seeking God's glory, we seek the will of God. Verse 14 says, About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. He just went up into the temple, began teaching. We don't know what he taught on necessarily, but whatever he taught on had an effect on the folks there, just like it always had an effect on the folks wherever he went and taught. And what was their comment? How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? What the, literally, what that means is how is it this, this man knows his letters, even though he has never studied? How is it that he knows anything, even the most basic of things? How is it that he's able to read and write and understand? Because he's never learned. He didn't go to divinity school like the Pharisees and the scribes. So how is it that he knows much more than them? And how is it that he's able to contend with them even? So he tells us, because normally, as Jesus does, he, he hears the murmuring in the crowd, and he, and he responds directly to that. So look at verses 16 and 17. So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. What's Jesus saying here? If anyone is willing to do God's will, if anyone is willing to morally follow and buy into what Jesus is teaching, then he already knows whether or not Jesus is the real thing. This is nothing new. This is taught ever since the garden. What happened when, when man sinned? They died in their trespasses. No one does good. No one seeks after God. No, not one. Except he who already knows him. He who the Father has given to him. We learn this in chapter 6, that no man comes to the Father unless he's drawn. No man comes to the Son unless the Father has made it known to him. So there are those there that knew Jesus was who he says he was, that knew he was legit. They were, they were already doing the will of God. This isn't in the reverse, notice. We don't start doing God's will, then come to a knowledge of him as Savior. Because then it would be us, right? Then it would be all about our own works. But no, he changes us. Then we start doing the works of God. We come to that knowledge, and that knowledge necessitates that they'll then, we'll then be doing the will of God. One cannot know God and not be doing his will. Verse 18. A very telling verse here. 
The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. This is an interesting. Jesus gets right to the to the point. He cuts right to the heart of their motives. The telling verse there for the, the people concerning the Jewish leadership. As for us today, as we examine those who teach in our pulpits today, who teach on the TV, who teach on the radio, who teach in a place that they'll never be heard or seen, because sadly, Christianity and today in America has become very personality-driven. And anymore, we tend to follow people rather than the Word of God. And this is happening in the Reformed tradition as well as any other tradition. This isn't just a, you know, this, this is a Reformed thing. This is, this is a, a wide problem in Christianity. These people, these personalities, they have, wide, they have vast amounts of followers, and a lot of times for no fault of their own. They're just a good preacher. They're good at what they do, and people start listening to them. People start following to following them, and as their renown grows, as their own glory grows, so does oftentimes their disdain for preaching the truth and doing the will of God. Because what I mean, what is Timothy tell us, or what does Paul tell us in his letter to Timothy, that people will always gather for themselves people to tickle their ears, to make them feel good, to, to tell them how great they are, to tell them how much God needs them, and how much work they are doing for the kingdom, and how much money they are giving, and constantly praising men instead of God. And you get the idea. You've all heard it before. Jesus says the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory and therefore is not doing the will of God because to do the will of God is to seek the glory of God alone. This is why we open the Bible every week and preach from it. Because if I or anyone else does anything different, then what are we doing? We're speaking from our own authority, and it turns the glory to ourselves. If I decide I'm not going to preach from the Bible next week, I'm going to preach from some other book, then it becomes about me, because what other book carries the authority that Scripture does? No other book. And I tell my friends that if you visit a church that doesn't preach the Scriptures, you're not visiting a church of Jesus, but you're visiting a shrine to humanity where the pastors likely worship instead of our Lord Jesus. And the voice of tradition and good vibes and good feelings rings out rather than the voice of God in the pages of Scripture. We need this because this is our authority. We preach Scripture because it is our authority. If we derive any authority from someplace else, we, we seek our own glory. And I think this is a warning for all of us because all of us are teachers to some degree or another. Not everyone stands up in a pulpit and teaches, but all of us teach the scriptures to some degree or another. We should be. Because the moment that we think we aren't capable of becoming the false teacher is the moment that we are had by the father of lies rather than the way, the truth, and the life. Because we are very capable of becoming the false teacher who wants his own glory. 
So what do we have to do? We have to guard ourselves. We have to know ourselves. We have to guard each other. Because it's very easy to seek the praise of men rather than to seek the glory of God. Men I love and respect dearly in the ministry have fallen victim to this. Because receiving the praise of men feels really good. And oftentimes it feels a lot better than preaching the gospel because the gospel divides. You praise men, you're never going to send them away. But if you give all the glory to Jesus, you're going to send men away. They're going to be disgusted with you sometimes. Because when we preach the gospel, this is where we are telling sinners that those who trust in their own goodness are going to hell. That's a hard message to hear. And so we have to pray for one another in this. We have to stand together. We have to check one another regularly. Because it's the men and women who are preaching the gospel regularly who need protection from evil because they're the only ones that evil is going to come against. And so whether you're doing it from a pulpit, by a Bible study, talking with your kids at home, talking to them on the way to the store, talking with a friend on the phone, no matter what it is, your teaching must come 100% from the authority of Scripture, and only then will it give glory to God. And so the second point, in judging with right judgment, we see the grace of God. And so Jesus, as he is oftentimes want to do, he pushes this a little further. Verse 19, he says, Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? Jesus knew that the folks there fancied him as a Sabbath breaker, so he pressed them on that very idea. He, they fancied him as the Sabbath breaker, which in turn fancied themselves as these great Sabbath keepers. And so he presses them on it. Remember back in chapter 5, what did it say of Jesus? That he was persecuted for what he had done, for, for healing on the Sabbath. Jesus knows the hearts of men. And this question is spot on. Why do you seek to kill me? Of course they were seeking to kill him. And so much so, the people are bothered by this. What do they shout back? You have a demon, which is basically code for, you are nuts. And then verse 21, he answers them. I did one work, and you marvel at it. I did one work. I healed a man who had been crippled his whole life. I gave him the ability to walk, and he picked up his mat and he walked, and it happened to be on the Sabbath day, which was no accident on the Lord's part. And you marvel at it, which is another way to say you're bothered by it because it was on the Sabbath. And then Jesus goes on. And he picks further. Moses gave you circumcision, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me? Because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well. You circumcise on the Sabbath. What is circumcision? Remember, it's a sign. And what does that sign ultimately point to? Our need of a Savior. Art and God's promise that he's going to save. This is God's promise to Abram, that he's going to save his people from their sins. And here is the deliverer. Here is the promise there in front of them. 
you circumcise. However, what would they do? They would punish the very Redeemer himself for showing a sign of his deliverance by healing this man on a day that he himself set aside so that the people would remember that he was their deliverer. They're completely missing the point, aren't they? Jesus was doing a Sabbath work. He was doing a restoration, a salvation work. Yet for them, what did they see? They see, instead of him giving life, they say, no, you deserve death for that. They would rather have the sign than the Savior. Because the sign is something that they can do. Why? To seek their own glory. To seek their own salvation with their own works. While what does the Savior require of them? Requires them to humble themselves and to give him glory, which is what they're all doing. You have to understand this is in the midst of a people living in huts in the street. So that they can remember to be humble and remember their deliverer. And here's their deliverer among them and they want to kill him because they'd rather have their own good works. And Jesus ends this by saying, do not judge by appearances, but judge with a right judgment. And the admonition here is that we would see things as they are in the light of the deliverer, Jesus Christ. And again, consider the Feast of Booths and the reason that they were living in huts. Because by all appearances, by all appearances, the people of God struggled in the wilderness. They lived in these huts. They were out there for all these years. But what do we read? Is you know, you read a passage in Deuteronomy chapter eight, and what does it say? It says their clothes never wore out, and their shoes never wore out for all those years. Why? Because God was with them. He was with them as they struggled. It wasn't because they were good people that their clothes never wore out or that they just happened to walk out and bread and water were all over the place that they could eat and quail. They were provided for. It wasn't their own good. Well, I must have been really good today. Look at all the bread the Lord gave me. No, it was because of his provision. Because if you read the Old Testament, you'll see they were horrible. They wanted to go back to Egypt, yet he provided anyway. The people here would judge Jesus because he healed on the Sabbath. Missing the fact that the Lord of the Sabbath was bringing about redemption right before them. Anytime we are seeking our own glory, we will see everything in the light of our own standard. And we'll judge people according to our own righteousness. And we'll judge people according to our own contrived laws. And what will we do with Scripture? We will twist it to say what we want. And we'll close the doors to the church to only those who fit our mold and our desired character. And we'll become a very ingrown people who love ourselves, who love our own righteousness, and who have kicked Jesus to the curb. We'll make salvation have other qualifications besides the righteousness of Christ. Rather than the gospel being on our tongues, we'll preach it over and over again, the message that we aren't as bad as the world because we are good people. I mean, look at us. We follow the Sabbath. Look at us. We do all these good things that make us Christians. 
we have to understand where this thinking leads. And number one, brothers and sisters, we can't see ourselves as immune to it. Because it happens overnight. It happens so subtly. It happens so easily. You have to see where this thinking leads. Because sometimes we all want this to be true. Sure, we want ourselves to be on top of the world. We want ourselves to be on the throne. We want our goodness to be the standard for all other people. And when we judge people according to our own goodness, of course they're going to look horrible because we think we're great. But if we look at ourselves in light of the righteousness of Christ, what do we found? Wanting. We have to be humble and we have to seek his grace. Because by the grace of God, we don't always exist in this place, thankfully, where we think our goodness is the right way. But many times we do. And what about the lost? Those who don't know Jesus, well, this is where they always exist. They always think that it's their own goodness that's going to get them saved. Just like these people here. That's why they shouted, Jesus, you have a demon. We're not seeking to kill you. It's offensive to them. It's offensive to any man or woman who doesn't know Jesus. The unbelievers think that they can solve it themselves. And they can even out the truth as an imposter, just as Jesus' brothers had planned to do. They wanted to out Jesus as an imposter. He's not really who he says he is. We're going to show him up at this point. However, Jesus is Lord. And he's the Lord, whether or not you've been convinced of that. And so, if you're here and you're an unbeliever, the call for you is repent of your desire to save yourself. Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. He is the only way to salvation. Repent of your own self-righteousness. Believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even while you were yet sinner, Jesus died for you. And in conclusion, believers, I think it's real easy for us to even look at a passage like this and see ourselves on the outside and think, well, I would have been right there beside Jesus. I would have been right there beside Jesus getting on to those who follow the law and the Sabbath as the way to, to salvation. Nope, we wouldn't have been because we need Jesus. It's easy for us to make our standard the standard. It's easy for us to speak from our own authority. However, our own authority is always a farce. Our tr the truth isn't ours, and our belief doesn't validate the truth any. The truth is his. We must accept the words of Jesus. They are the only truth that we need for salvation of our souls and our continued growth in grace. So, to that end, let us endeavor brothers and sisters, to hold one another up as we teach, as we learn from Scripture. Never settle for anything less than the righteousness of Jesus Christ and the truth of his word. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord, the temptation and the appeal of the love and the praise of man is very tempting. It's very tempting to want to be known. It's very tempting to want to teach from our own authority as one who has wisdom on our own, who has insight on our own, but help us, Lord, to simply open your word, help us to teach from your word, because it has its authority from you. And help us to get our authority from you, help us to seek only your glory and to do your will. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.